Chapter 3 of The Miracles of Our Lord by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan. Chapter 3 The Cure of Simon's Wife's Mother. In respect of the purpose I have in view, it is of little consequence in what order I take the miracles. I choose for my second chapter the story of the cure of St. Peter's mother-in-law. Bare as the narrative is, the events it records has elements which might have been moulded with artistic effect. On the one side, the woman tossing in the folds of the fever, on the other, the entering life. But it is not from this side that I care to view it. Neither do I wish to look at it from the point of view of the bystanders, although it would appear that we had the testimony of three of them in the three Gospels which contain the story. We might almost determine the position in the group about the bed occupied by each of the three from the differences between their testimonies. One says, Jesus stood over her. Another, he touched her hand. The third, he lifted her up. They agree that the fever left her, and she ministered to them. In the present case, as in others behind, I mean to regard the miracle from the point of view of the person healed. Pain, sickness, delirium, madness, as great infringements of the laws of nature as the miracles themselves, are such veritable presences to the human experience that what bears no relation to their existence cannot be the God of the human race. And the man who cannot find his God in the fog of suffering, no less than he who forgets his God in the sunshine of health, has learned little, either of St. Paul or St. John. Their religion, whose light renders no dimmest glow across this evil air, cannot be more than a dim reflex of the true. And who will mourn to find this out? There are, perhaps, some so anxious about themselves that, rather than say, I have it not, it is a better thing than I have ever possessed, they would say, I have the precious thing, but in the hour of trial it is of little avail. Let us rejoice that the glory is great, even if we dare not say, it is mine. Then shall we try the more earnestly to lay hold upon it. So long as men must toss in weary fancies all the dark night, crying, Would God it were morning, to find, it may be, when it arrives but little comfort in the grey dawn, so long must we regard God as one to be seen or believed in, cried unto, at least, across all the dreary flats of distress or dark mountains of pain, and therefore those who would help their fellows must sometimes look for him, as it were, through the eyes of those who suffer, and try to help them to think, not from ours, but from their own point of vision. I shall therefore now write almost entirely for those to whom suffering is familiar, or at least well known. And first I would remind them that all suffering is against the ideal order of things. 
No man can love pain. It is an unlovely, an ugly, abhorrent thing. The more true and delicate the bodily and mental constitution, the more must it recoil from pain. No one, I think, could dislike pain so much as the Saviour must have disliked it. God dislikes it. He is then on our side in the matter. He knows it is grievous to be born, a thing he would cast out of his blessed universe, save for reasons. But one will say, How can this help me when the agony racks me and the weariness rests on me like a gravestone? Is it nothing, I answer, to be reminded that suffering is in its nature transitory, that it is against the first and final will of God, that it is a means only, not an end? Is it nothing to be told that it will pass away? Is not that what you would? God made man for lordly skies, great sunshine, gay colours, free winds and delicate odours, and however the fogs may be needful for the soul, right gladly does he send them away, and cause the day-spring from on high to revisit his children. While they suffer, he is brooding over them an eternal day, suffering with them, but rejoicing in their future. He is the God of the individual man, or he could be no God of the race. I believe it is possible, and that some have achieved it, so to believe in and rest upon the immutable health, so to regard one's own sickness as a kind of passing aberration, that the soul is thereby sustained, even as sometimes in a weary dream the man is comforted by telling himself it is but a dream, and that waking is sure. God would have us reasonable and strong. Every effort of his children to rise above the invasion of evil in body or in mind is a pleasure to him. Few, I suppose, attain to this, but there is a better thing, to which many, I trust, is easier, to say, Thy will be done. But now let us look at the miracle as received by the woman. She had a great fever. She was tossing from side to side in vain attempts to ease a nameless misery. Her head ached, and forms dreary, even in their terror, kept rising before her in miserable and aimless dreams. Senseless words went on repeating themselves till her very brain was sick of them. She was destitute, afflicted, tormented. Now the centre for the convergence of innumerable atoms, now driven along in an uproar of hideous globes. Faces grinned and mocked at her. Her mind ever strove to recover itself, and was ever borne away in the rush of invading fancies. But through it all was the nameless unrest, not an aching nor a burning nor a stinging, but a bodily grief, dark, drear, and nameless. How could they have borne such before he had come? A sudden ceasing of motions uncontrolled. 
a coolness gliding through the burning skin, a sense of waking into repose, a consciousness of all-pervading well-being, of strength conquering weakness, of light displacing darkness, of urging life at the heart, and behold, she is sitting up in her bed, a hand clasping hers, a face looking in hers. He has judged the evil thing, and it is gone. He has saved her out of her distresses. They fold away from off her, like the cerements of death. She is new-born, new-made, all things are new-born with her, and he who makes all things new is there. From him, she knows, has the healing flowed. He has given of his life to her. Away, afar behind her, floats the cloud of her suffering. She almost forgets it in her grateful joy. She is herself now. She rises. The sun is shining. It had been shining all the time, waiting for her. The lake of Galilee is glittering joyously. That too sets forth the law of life, but the fulfilling of the law is love. She rises and ministers. I am tempted to remark in passing, although I shall have better opportunity of dealing with the matter involved, that there is no sign of those whom our Lord cures desiring to retain the privileges of the invalid. The joy of health is labour. He who is restored must be fellow-worker with God. The woman, lifted out of the whelming sand of the fever, and set upon her feet, hastens to her ministrations. She has been used to hard work. It is all right now. She must to it again. But who was he? who had thus lifted her up. She saw a young man by her side. Is it the young man, Jesus, of whom she has heard? For Capernaum is not far from Nazareth, and the report of his wisdom and goodness must have spread, for he had grown in favour with man as well as with God. Is it he, to whom God has given such power, or is it John, of whom she has also heard? Whether he was a prophet or a son of the prophets, whether he was Jesus or John, she waits not to question, for here are guests, here is something to be done. Questions will keep, work must be dispatched, it is the day, and the night is at hand. She rose and ministered unto them. But if we ask who he is, this is the answer. He is the Son of God, come to do the works of his Father. Where, then, is the healing of the Father? All the world over, in every man's life and knowledge, almost in every man's personal experience, although it may be unrecognized as such. For just as in certain moods of selfishness our hearts are insensible to the tenderest love of our surrounding families, so the degrading spirit of the commonplace enables us to live in the midst of ministrations so far from knowing them as such that it is hard for us to believe that the very heart of God would care to do that which his hand alone can do 
and is doing every moment. I remind my reader that I have taken it for granted that he confesses there is a God, or at least hopes there may be a God. If anyone interposes, saying that science nowadays will not permit him to believe in such a being, I answer, it is not for him I am now writing, but for such as have gone through a different course of thought and experience from his. To him I may be honoured to say a word some day. I do not think of him now. But to the reader of my choice, I do say that I see no middle course between believing that every alleviation of pain, every dawning of hope across the troubled atmosphere of the spirit, every case of growing well again is the doing of God, or that there is no God at all, none at least, in whom I could believe. Had Christians been believing in God better, more grandly, the present phase of unbelief, which no doubt is needful, and must appear sometime in the world's history, would not have appeared in our day. No doubt it has come when it must, and will vanish when it must. But those who do believe are more to blame for it, I think, than those who do not believe. The common kind of belief in God is rationally untenable. Half to an insensate nature, half to a living God, is a worship that cannot stand. Either God is all in all, or no God at all. The man who goes to church every Sunday, and yet trembles before chance, is a Christian only because Christ has claimed him, is not a Christian as having believed in him. I would not be hard. There are so many degrees in faith. A man may be on the right track, may be learning of Christ, and be very poor and weak. But I say there is no standing room, no reality of reason between absolute faith and absolute unbelief. Either not a sparrow falls to the ground without him, or there is no God, and we are fatherless children. Those who attempt to live in such a limbo as lies between the two are only driven of the wind and tossed. Has my reader ever known the weariness of suffering, the clouding of the inner sky, the haunting of spectral shapes, the misery of disordered laws, when nature is wrong within him, and her music is out of tune, and harsh, when he is shot through with varied griefs and pains, and it seems as there were no life more in the world, save of misery, pain, pain, ever, forever, then, surely, he has also known the turn of the tide, when the pain begins to abate, when the sweet sleep falls upon soul and body, when a faint hope doubtfully glimmers across the gloom. Or has he known the sudden waking from sleep and from fever at once, the consciousness that life is life, that life is the law of things, the coolness and the gladness, when the garments of pain which like the fabled garment of Dejanira, enwrapped and ate into his being, have folded back from head and heart, and he looks out again, once more newborn. It is God. This is his will, his law of life, conquering the law of death. Tell me not of natural laws as if I were ignorant of them, 
or meant to deny them. The question is whether these laws go wheeling on of themselves, in a symmetry of mathematical shapes, or whether their perfect order, their unbroken certainty of movement, is not the expression of a perfect intellect, informed by a perfect heart. Law is truth. Has it a soul of thought, or has it not? If not, then farewell hope and love and possible perfection. But for me, I will hope on, strive on, fight with the invading unbelief. For the horror of being the sport of insensate law, the more perfect, the more terrible, is hell and utter perdition. If a man tells me that science says God is not a likely being, I answer, probably not, such as you, who have given your keen, admirable, enviable powers to the observation of outer things only, are capable of supposing him. But that the God I mean may not be the very heart of the lovely order, you see so much better than I. You have given me no reason to fear. My God may be above and beyond and in all that. In this matter of healing, then, as in all the miracles, we find Jesus doing the works of the Father. God is our Saviour. The Son of God comes healing the sick. Doing that, I repeat, before our eyes, which the Father, for his own reasons, some of which I think I can see well enough, does from behind the veil of his creation and its laws. The cure comes by law, comes by the physician who brings the law to bear upon us. We awake, and lo, it is God the Saviour. Every recovery is as much his work as the birth of a child, as much the work of the Father as if it had been wrought by the word of the Son before the eyes of the multitude. Need I, to combat again the vulgar notion that the essence of the miracles lies in their power, dwell upon this miracle further? Surely no one who honours the Saviour will for a moment imagine him, as he entered the chamber where the woman lay tormented, saying to himself, Here is an opportunity of showing how mighty my father is. No. There was suffering. Here was healing. What I could imagine him saying to himself would be, Here I can help. Here my father will let me put forth my healing and give her back to her people. What should we think of a rich man who, suddenly brought into contact with the starving upon his own estate, should think within himself, Here is a chance for me. Now I can let them see how rich I am, and so plunge his hands into his pockets and lay gold upon the bare table. The receivers might well be grateful. But the arm of the poor neighbour, put under the head of the dying man, would gather a deeper gratitude, a return of tenderer love. It is heart alone that can satisfy heart. It is the love of God alone that can gather to itself the love of his children. To believe in an almighty being is hardly to believe in a God at all. To believe in a being who in his weakness and poverty, if such could be, 
would die for his creatures, would be to believe in a God indeed. End of chapter 3